Well, we were in Australia. Uh, we learned that they're spending $128 million at this time, the government, on a non-binding referendum that's taking place to decide whether to accept same-sex marriage. I think that all of us know that the way the world is going, the spirit that's behind uh, this movement, that it will eventually uh, be the law of the land in Australia, as it is in almost all the Israelitish nations around the world. It's amazing how the Gentile nations are more righteous in some of these areas, not in every area, but in some of these areas than, uh, than the, the Gentiles and the Israelites. It's not an irrelevant question to ask what makes an action right or wrong. I think all of us know the answer to that. However, sometimes it does us well to think about it and to meditate on it and to consider it because sometimes we forget in our actions what it is that makes an action right or wrong. Is it human reason? Now, you know that it's not human reason, but not everybody does. I've read a few of the quotes I'm going to give you today. This one I know I've given in the past someplace, either in writing or a telecast or perhaps here. But Erdman's Handbook to the History of Christianity uh, says the ancient world had a great respect for tradition and precedent, especially in religion. Christianity seemed to be quite new, so this set a serious stumbling block. The Christian writers tried to overcome this problem by demonstrating that the faith had centuries-old roots in Israel. It certainly did. And in the wisdom of Greek philosophers. Justin Martyr wrote, quote, Christ is the Logos in whom every race of man shared. Those who lived in accordance with Logos, true reason, nor is defining Logos as true reason, are Christians. Even though they were regarded as atheists, for example, Socrates and Heraclitus among the Greeks. So you are a true Christian if you know how to reason properly according to Justin Martyr. Thomas Paine published a uh, series of pamphlets titled The Age of Reason. Uh, these were published in three sections, 1794, 95, and 1807. Uh, Thomas Paine was a deist. He believed in God. But he rejected organized religion. And when I say organized religion... <clears throat> He rejected Christianity, he rejected the Bible, but looked to reason as the answer. And he advocated that reason should replace revelation, that revelation was not the answer, but reason. Not all that far from Justin Martyr, except that Justin Martyr was talking about Christianity and Thomas Paine was talking about the natural order of things, that God created certain natural laws, and that all kinds of religions, as long as you believed in God, in a deity, a higher power, uh, that somehow you were okay. Now, when we use the expression, here's what I think, 
which we often do, don't we? In reality, we are looking to true human reason. Here's what I think. And what I think really isn't all that important. It's what God thinks it's important. But so often, as human beings, we look to our own human reason to determine certain things. Now, if it's not human reason, is right or wrong determined by majority vote? Well, it seems that that is the way that many people conduct their lives. As an example, going to bed with someone before marriage, uh, everybody's doing it, so it must be okay. And even within the church of God, we find that this is sometimes a problem. Now, I'm not trying to make people feel bad who have made that mistake and have repented, but I mention this to try to help all of us to avoid that and other sins. But it does seem that people are not uh, as adverse to that as they might have otherwise been because everybody's doing it. When nobody's doing it, <clears throat> there's a certain social tendency to avoid certain problems, but when everybody's doing it, well, it must be okay. At least many of our young people think that way. But I've noticed over the years that older people have the approach that fornication is okay because uh, I'm an adult. It's kind of like going to an adult bookstore or adult movie place. That after a certain age, that that law doesn't apply. It was really written for teenagers. Uh, I noticed that a long time ago, that sometimes older people think that it's okay because they're more mature. So is right and wrong determined by majority vote? Or is it determined by political correctness? Now, I've put this as a separate category because it involves human reason and majority vote. But this human reason and this majority vote is imposed by force by a small elitist group that determines what is right thinking and what is wrong. The media, the educational institutions, various individuals in our society have determined what is right and what is wrong, and they call it political correctness, or we refer to it. Everybody decries political correctness, but how often do we go along with it? I've quoted this at different occasions, a particular book that if any of our younger ladies do not have it, I really strongly recommend it. It's called Unprotected. I have one of the early editions because it is anonymous MD. Uh, the author is, is Miriam Grossman. She's a psychiatrist or was a psychiatrist at UCLA, one of the most prestigious universities in North America or the world. But she wrote anonymously because she knew that she wouldn't have a job very long if it was known what she was saying. And it's a tremendous book, and I only want to read a little bit on political correctness. There's so many good quotes in here, but 
try to stay to the subject. She writes, you probably didn't know what some insider psychologists are now revealing, that psychology, psychiatry, and social work has been captured by an ultra-liberal agenda, and that there are special interest mafias in our national organizations. Likely you didn't hear that certain points of view are squelched, that there are horror stories of shunning and intimidation, and that many will not speak up fearing ridicule, vicious attack, or loss of tenure or stature. A past president of the American Psychiatric Association in a book about this alarming situation wrote, quote, I lived through the McCarthy era and the Hollywood witch hunts, and as abominable as these were, there was not the insidious sense of intellectual intimidation that currently exists under political correctness. Then she writes a little bit later, excuse me, Yes, the university and my department were committed to the principles of diversity and multiculturalism. This commitment was plastered all over our policy statements, but somehow through the years I got the sense that the diversity that I represented wasn't the same type to which they were so profoundly committed. So you can understand why she would write that anonymously, especially when you read the rest of it. It's it's an easy, it's a small book kind of book I liked when I was young. Small, uh, fairly large print, uh, not that many words on a page, and just absolutely dynamite for, I think, every young lady should read that. Fellows, too, but especially our ladies. And uh, it's written from a woman's perspective, and many of the issues are women's issues. <clears throat> but today, political correctness defines how you are to think and act. It's okay to be intolerant of traditional or biblical values, but not the politically correct values. And through PC, it is censorship by force in sheep's clothing of tolerance and openness. Yet in the Word of God, the Bible, we're taught that the objective standard of right and wrong is the law of God, the very thing that human reason, majority view, and political correctness are trying to replace and destroy. The question, what makes an action right or wrong, is relevant even to those of us in the church. And here's why. First of all, God warns against human reason. Some of these scriptures are quite familiar to us. Uh, Proverbs 14, 12. This is a passage of scripture that I cut my teeth on, you might say, that many of us who were in the church years ago cut our teeth on. It was something that we memorized, that we understood. It was a part of our thinking. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's repeated in chapter 16 and verse 25. There's a way that seems right. It seems like the thing to do. I reminded of the fellow that the minister walked into services one day. This was back in worldwide days. And he was telling me about it. He walked into services and uh, the local deacon there handed him a paper and said, have you seen this? Well, he hadn't seen it. 
But what it was, the headlines on the front page of the local newspaper was Man Moons Church. And the man that mooned the church was a church member. And it was a Sunday morning, and I guess he was, uh, he was driving down the street with some friends, and he, he mooned the church. I think most of you know what mooning is. If you don't, ask your neighbor <laughs> after services. And as, as the minister was relating it to me, he, he confronted the fellow and asked him, and he said, well, it just seemed like the thing to do. It's a way that seems right. It just seemed like the thing to do. How often do we do something because it seems like the thing to do? And then he said he, he wasn't really very repentant. He could tell he wasn't repentant because he said, well, sir, it, it wasn't really, it wasn't like a, a full moon. It was more like a half moon. So anyway, it seemed like the thing to do. And yet Proverbs tells us that the things that seem right end in death. Ultimately, we're also familiar with Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, specifically verse 9, but I want to read a little bit earlier, Jeremiah 17, beginning in verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord or the Eternal. Verse 6, Jeremiah 17, verse 6, For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the eternal, and whose hope is the eternal. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green, it will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease from yielding fruit. And then verse 9, we're familiar with this, the heart, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the eternal, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So God tells us not to trust in ourselves. Notice also in the 10th chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 10. This should be familiar to us as well. It says, O eternal, verse 23, Jeremiah 10, 23. O eternal, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O eternal, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Do we realize that it's not within us to know how to direct our own steps? Jeremiah was the one who made this statement. And I don't think that we have anything at all over Jeremiah. If he didn't know how to direct his steps, do we? This is why this whole question of what's right and what is wrong is so important. Because we must look to the right source in making our decisions. In Proverbs, the third chapter, Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 5, Proverbs 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding. Don't look to your own human reasoning. In other words, in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the eternally depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. These are powerful words when you think about it. They're very meaningful words. But they're only meaningful if we allow them to be a part of us, if we internalize them. So the first reason that it's relevant to those of us in the church is that God warns us against human reason. Now, the second reason is that it's relevant because the world does affect our thinking. It really does affect our thinking. Think back on Lot. God called Lot righteous. Righteous Lot. And yet, when you look at some of the things that Lot did, we would be horrified today uh, to do the things that he did. We have two nations that were created because of an incestuous relationship. He allowed himself to get drunk and have relations with his daughters. Uh, They put him up to it, but still he allowed that to happen. Let me give you three examples of things that I've heard many members buy into. Three examples of things. In fact, I'll probably offend a few people because you've heard it so long and so many times. And if you hear a lie long enough and loud enough, you begin to believe it. And we take some things as truths, even though we've never thought through what is being said by society around us. We've all heard that alcoholism is a disease. Now, to challenge that is really to uh, put yourself in a category of not living in reality. I'd like to revert to 1 John 1, 1 John 1. And some might say, well, why, why even take this on? Because there are so many people that just simply believe it because that's what they've heard all of their lives. But think about what is the meaning of disease and what is being talked about here. In 1 John 1, in verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, what I like... Uh, to go to on this is the New Bible Commentary Revised because it has a very interesting statement about this verse. It says, Sin is something that persists. It clings to the sinner. When we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But to say such an obviously false thing as that we have no sin excludes the possibility of the truths dwelling in us. And then this has been, I've quoted this a number of times in a Bible study on the book of 1 John. This has relevance for the modern man 
who says that sin is a disease or a weakness and claims that it is due to heredity, environment, necessity, or the like, so that he regards it as his fate, not his fault. Such a man deceives himself. Now, when someone falls into drunkenness to the point of what we call an alcoholic, uh, we might say, well, their, their actions are sick or whatever. But the problem is that we, we find more and more in our society that it's not your fault. It's not your fault. There was an individual who, whose defense when he was fired from, I believe it was the U.S. Postal Service, was that he had compulsive tardiness syndrome. Showed up late for work all the time. Wasn't his fault. Because he had a disease. A tardiness syndrome. Compulsive. I remember living up in Asheville, and they had an advertisement. This was back in the 80s. And they had an advertisement uh, from some hospital. Do you overeat? It's not your fault. In other words, gluttony is a disease. And more and more, it's not our fault. The opiate, opiate um, uh, problem that we have in our, our culture today uh, has been labeled a disease. Do people need treatment? I would say they probably do. But it's a way of saying it's really not your fault. If you're an alcoholic, it's because of heredity. Now, it is true that individuals have different weaknesses and proclivities. Uh, Please understand, we're not saying that that's not the case, but still, there's a decision that has to be made concerning these things. And there are people that make decisions not to do certain things because they realize they can't handle things. So they stay away from them. But the, the, the meaning of the days of unleavened bread is that sin is bondage. And that we must come out of that bondage, the bondage of Egypt. And it's not always easy to do so. But there are truths that are missed because we've been taught this so long that we accept that a person who drinks too much is an alcoholic and therefore he's, it's because of a disease. It's not his fault. He's caught a disease somehow. It's his background. And again, there are some people that are more prone to one sin or another. But sin is sin. Let me give you another example, something that we buy into. And thankfully, there are voices that have spoken out against it, but that is the example of the self-esteem movement. Now, I understand that the term may be used in an okay manner. Even our child-rearing booklet uses it, but tries to point out the balance between encouraging and uh, The self-esteem movement, which is just to build somebody up uh, unjustly. How often do we hear such things as, you can't love others until you first love yourself? I dare say 
Probably some in this room have said that. Well, you can't learn, you can't love others till you first love yourself. What does the Bible say? Let's go over to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Ephesians 5. All of these things have legs. They have consequences. And when we buy a product that is deceptive, it does affect our thinking and our actions. In Ephesians 5, notice verse 28. It says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Now, what we see here is that we are to love our wives, first of all, and the other will take care of itself. By loving our wives, we're loving ourselves. There's a different order. It, it, it really, this is one of those things that uh, I had a very difficult time figuring it out. <clears throat> because I had bought into the self-esteem movement, everybody, it was the mantra of the day 30 years ago. And then I moved to a particular area, and everybody was talking about their self-esteem, and they had this club to build their self-esteem, and that club to build their self-esteem. They had a poetry club. They had, oh, I should have brought that letter. I didn't think of it, but I had a, a not a letter, but a poem. This woman had written for the poetry club, and he said, you know, it's something like, you build me up when I am down, you give me strength when I'm weak, you do this, you do that, you do all these sort of things, you are this thing we call self-esteem. And giving credit to self-love instead of God, instead of looking to God. And what I found with all the people that got hung up in the self-esteem movement was that their their whole lives were in the tank. Part of the reason is that they're depending on other people to build them up. And when you have a child, for example, we, we know that the Bible tells us not to discourage our children... It tells us, in fact, here in chapter 6, uh, verse 1, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. As fathers, we should, we should lift our children up. We should hold them up. We should encourage them. But when they do wrong, we shouldn't tell them that's okay. We shouldn't have them do stupid things to build their self-esteem, as one young fellow cut a couple uh, uh, lightning rods in his, his hair, you know, shaved it certain ways. And when I asked him why, well, it helped my self-esteem. Uh, we had all kinds of problems amongst people. And... A lot of that is because they, they're depending on others to lift them up. Now, you can give Johnny all the self-esteem in the world, but if he doesn't have anything to back it up, what is he going to do when he gets into the real world? His employer doesn't care about his self-esteem. He just, you know, is concerned whether the job gets done. 
Let's notice 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. This is what God tells us about <clears throat> our end time. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3. This is what God says of the latter days, the last days. Verse 1, but know this, that in the last days, perilous, dangerous times will come. Why? Why is it that these times will be that way? It says, for men will be lovers of themselves. Now, we all love ourselves, but it's talking about, obviously, something that is abnormal, something that is exaggerated. And we have a whole society where we spend all of our time trying to build people's self-esteem. And again, there's a, there's a balance in this, as the child-rearing booklet brings out. You, you, you try to build people up, but you don't do it artificially. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. You know, they've done studies and found that people in prison don't lack self-esteem. They're doing just fine when it comes to self-esteem. They think a lot of themselves. Notice verse 3, unloving. They love themselves, but what about others? Do they love others? When we love others and we do what is right, the self-esteem takes care of itself. We feel good about ourselves. When we, when you do something right, you feel good about yourself, don't you? When you do something wrong, you feel bad, and you should feel bad. But the idea that we can just build people up, make them feel good about themselves, tell them they're wonderful, they're great, when they're not, is not working. We're creating a lot of narcissistic people in our society. So that's something to think about. One thing I've learned over the years is that when the whole world is on the bandwagon, it's probably time to get off. And some of these things that seem so absolutely certain, uh, in the long run, they don't always prove to be so. Now, a third example of how it affects the church I've already mentioned is that some think that fornication is okay because everyone's doing it. So that's why sometimes it's important to look at these things. What is the standard for right and wrong? Today we're looking at, to answer that question, what makes an action right or wrong? Now what seems obvious to many of us may not be obvious to everyone in this room and certainly not to the majority in the world. Jesus summed up the law in two statements. The sermonette actually kind of went along with this in so many ways, or this going along with the sermonette. Matthew, the 22nd chapter, Matthew 22, and verse 37, 36, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said to, the, to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, don't you think that Jesus should have 
said, love yourself first. But he didn't say that, did he? He didn't say that. I'm trying to think in the Bible, where does it say love yourself? It, It really doesn't. It says that no man ever hated himself. But wouldn't you think that if self-esteem, getting back to that subject again, if it's so important that God would have said something about it? Uh, the closest he says about it is, fathers, don't discourage your children, and, and you can. You can beat your children down to the point where they have no more spirit in them. It's important to give them encouragement, to help them to, to do things well. So that they do have a good feeling about themselves in the right way. But it says you shall love God with all your heart and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He inspired this wisdom many centuries earlier. Because Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. The one who became Jesus Christ. And so if we go back to Deuteronomy the 6th chapter. We find that. He knew the words that were written in the book. In verse 5, he says, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So Jesus was quoting from the Old Testament that he had originally inspired. In Leviticus, the 19th chapter, Leviticus 19 And verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Eternal. That's uh, Leviticus 19.18. But what is it that goes before that statement? Well, let's just pick it up here in verse 9. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the the gleanings of your harvest. But you shall not glean your vineyard, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the eternal your God. So it's giving us instruction of caring for the poor. And what is interesting about this It is saying that if you have a field where you are uh, planting wheat or barley or something like that, leave the corners of the field, leave the edges there for the poor, that they can come in and glean. And it's such a different world, isn't it, from our world today? Uh, At that time, if they were poor, they still went out and they had to glean. They had to work for their food. But it was made possible for them to do so. When I was living up in Asheville again, we had a, a fellow that raised apples, apple orchards. And so when he came into the church, he understood this. And so he invited the people out to the orchard to the members so that they could glean uh, from those that were left behind. And a few people came out and they were thankful for it. The next year, he let the people know again, and people are telling him, well, can't you just bring a bag yourself? 
they didn't want to have to actually do the work because they had to drive there or spend the money to get there and one thing and another. And so they were wanting him to, to give them freebies but not follow what the scriptures say. And so eventually he stopped doing it. Nobody really wanted to take him up on it. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, verse 11, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the eternal. I gave a sermon on that some years ago, that God is the standard. He sets a standard. Verse 13, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. In a society where they... uh, Normally, we're paid on a a daily basis, apparently. Uh, That's the way it it was at that time. I remember down in South Africa, uh, one time, one of the the fellows had uh, some agriculture there. And we were outside and talking, and and one of his workers came up and uh, pulled him aside and and found out later that he needed a cash advance, or at least for that day. So the, the individual went into his house, got some money, came out and, and gave him the money. He didn't withhold those wages that the man was earning, uh, realizing that there was a situation where uh, some people are not very good money managers and they just need a little extra help. He was following, I think, the scripture here. Now, in general, in our society, we get paid once a week, once every two weeks, uh, once every or twice a month, sometimes once a month. Over in England, they they get paid once a month. That's the kind of the standard over there. It takes a little getting used to, but it's done differently. But the point is, if someone has worked for something and needs the money, then you take care of that. It says, you shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob, rob him. Verse fourteen: You shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the eternal. In other words, if someone is blind, you don't put a rock or something to cause them to stumble and then have a big laugh about it. It's talking about actions here. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. So you don't judge somebody because of who they are in the terms of maybe they're, they're wealthy and so, okay, stick it to him. Or someone is poor and cannot defend himself very well, so you stick it to him. No, we are to judge righteous judgment. You shall not go about as a talebearer or a gossiper among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the eternal. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the eternal. Now notice that In that passage about loving our neighbor, what we find here is that is based on actions. It's not a feeling that we have, but it's the actions that we have. We see from all this that the end result of the law is love. And that love is how we treat one another, not not how others make us feel. 
Now, does this mean that we must accept every act and every behavior that somebody has and be supportive of it? Well, I think we know the answer to that. Why is loving God and loving neighbor right? Why is it right to love God and love our neighbor? Why, why did God give us his law? What is, what is the purpose of the law? In Isaiah, the eighth chapter, <clears throat> Isaiah 8, says, When they say to you, <clears throat> verse 19, Seek those who are mediums or wizards, who whisper and mutter, Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There's no light in them. If they're not speaking according to the law or according to God's word. Now, it's interesting that it says there's no light in them. It doesn't say that there's no truth in them because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has both good and evil. It might have some truth, but it's got a twist to it, doesn't it? So often, when you watch the news and you see people carrying into one another, they tell a truth, but then they mix it with an untruth. And so the end result is that it's all a lie. There's no light. We're not going to be enlightened. We have religion today that does away with the law of God, and yes, there may be some good things that are happening, but in the end, we're not brought into light. We're left in darkness. Notice Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And verse 105. Very familiar passage for many of us. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If we don't have a lamp or a light, and we're walking along a path at night, what happens? We stumble. We fall. We injure ourselves. And God's word is a lamp. It shows us the right way. Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6. And verse 20. Proverbs 6 and verse 20 says, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually upon your heart. Tie them around your neck. So the commands of our fathers, the laws that our mothers give us, bind them continually upon your heart and tie them around your neck. When you roam, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light. The law, a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. God's law lights the way. It shows us the way that we should live. I gave a uh, telecast up in Canada one time on, uh, what was it, uh, a particular airline that crashes 50% of the time. Now, how many people would fly on an airline if you knew that you had a 50-50 chance of it crashing? 
I don't think we'd want to, would we? Even if we're 25% chance, I wouldn't want to fly on it. Or 10% chance. We fly because we have a certain amount of confidence that we're going to arrive safely. Um, I can't remember what I called that. Can't, uh, something, the crash airline or whatever it was. But anyway, uh, we wouldn't do that, would we? But how many people live their lives violating the laws of God when the results of that are going to be a crash? We, we have certain ways of dating today, as an example. But if you look at our dating practices, uh, what, what's the end result of them? Uh, it's more than just the dating part of it. But when we look at marriage today, the way that we approach marriage, the roles in marriage, the, the whole panorama of what marriage is today, uh, how many succeed and how many fail? It is encouraging that we have many people who have been, who are in the church, who have been married 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years. Oh, there are quite a few, actually. However, when you look at the world as a whole, uh, especially in the United States right now and some of the other Israelite countries, it's uh, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent failure. And it would be higher if people bothered to get married. Now, this should tell us that something is wrong, that something is not working very well. And you would think that people would make an adjustment. I think I talked about that, the program, a scientific approach toward morality. If we looked at morality and we looked at the evidence, we'd say that what we're doing is not working. We wouldn't fly in a plane like that. But we live our lives ready to crash. This opioid, opioid epidemic, as they call it. Do you realize it's killing more people every year than we lost in the entirety of Vietnam for the whole time? Fifty-some-odd thousand people are dying, mostly from overdosing on illegal drugs, but some of it is prescribed by doctors and people become dependent upon it. I personally know an individual that uh, died because of it. And how many people are there out there? It's a terrible scourge on our society. But why do people take them? They somehow think they can beat the odds. But nevertheless, if we obeyed God's law, there'd be no penalty there. We would not miss out on something. Scripture reveals that the true source of this light is God and Christ. Let's notice over in John, the first chapter, John 1. And let's begin in... Uh, well, we'll begin in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In other words, the, the word, the spokesman, the logos, is a light. It's a light to the world. Christ's very character was a light for mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, that is the world, the ways of the world, the people of the world, did not comprehend it. They did not comprehend this light. And then it says that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, to bear witness of Christ, who is the light, that all through him might be uh, believe. He was not that light, John was not, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus Christ's very life, his very character, what he is, is the light. He was the one that inspired the law. He was the one that lives by the law, or lived, well, lived by the law, and is continuing to live by the law in us if we are yielding to him. Notice the connection that we find in the book of 1 John between light and law and the source of that light. Turn over to 1 John, the first chapter, and we'll begin in verse 5. It says, This is the message which we heard from him and declared to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, verse 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we see that he is the light, that Jesus Christ is the light. And if we have fellowship with him, we're going to walk in light. We're going to walk as he walked. Notice it in second chapter, beginning in verse 3, very familiar verses. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, if he is the light, we are to walk just as he walked. Not only does the light show us the way, but we see that this is the very character of God. The law of God expounds upon the very character of God. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And then it tells us that he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, God 
as it tells us in the fourth chapter and verse 8, is love. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, as we've already seen, to love our neighbor requires actions. It's what we do. We don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. I don't think that most of us are guilty of that. Hopefully nobody's guilty of that. But there are people like that out there that are willing to do that. Or someone who may not be as mentally uh, bright as, as the average person will make fun of them. We may not put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but do we make fun of people? who may not be totally there. Children can be cruel in that way. They really can be, and we need to make sure that we work with our children so that they they don't fall into that trap, that they're not that way, that they stand up for the weak instead of making fun of the weak. It's repeated down in verse 16, and we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So let me summarize this a little bit. Right from wrong is determined by what God is. It isn't just that God is is telling us to do this simply because he decided that, well, this is a way that I can persecute people. I can make life hard on them, make it difficult for them. I mean, certainly our our children think that of us sometimes, don't they? They think that mom or dad is just trying to make life hard on them. When in reality, we're trying to protect them. And when we look at the light, which is Jesus Christ, uh, his example, his life, the law is a reflection of God. It's telling us what God is. It is protecting us from ourselves and is showing us a better way. God teaches us about himself through his law. God is love, and his law teaches us what it means to love. He is a standard of right and wrong, not only because he is the creator and ruler of all that is, but because his nature sets the very standard for us. Now, in light of this, let's look at some big questions facing our world today in the time that we have left. And these are things that I think that most of us are aware of, but we have to remind, especially our young people, but I think everybody in general, that it is the law of God that determines things. I was out in uh, Newfoundland, for example, and given a Tomorrow's World presentation, and I was invited over to a, a man's house to talk to him, and I found out, I think after I accepted the invitation, he was a, a United a Minister from the United Church of Canada, not the United Church of God, but the United Church of Canada. And it was, it was a very educational experience because he asked me what I thought about homosexuality, and I referred to the Bible, what it says. And then he proceeded to explain how he knew somebody who had committed suicide, who was of that persuasion and one thing or another. And he began to use human reason to explain to me uh, his thoughts about the subject. And although I knew academically 
that the ministry of this world doesn't see things the same way we do and that they use human reasoning, it was just interesting to see it firsthand. It was an education for me. Now, homosexuality and same-sex marriage is being shoved down the throats of our children and, and mankind in general. And it's amazing how many adults have no problem with this. I was watching the news one morning in, uh, I don't remember where it was. It was either New Zealand or Australia. And Dolly Parton was on there. And it was Australia is where it was now, I remember, because uh, the, the question of same-sex marriage is, is hot in their minds at this time. <clears throat> and so they asked her a lot of different things and point out that she has a faith-based life. Uh, the things that she does, some of the charities that she has, and everything is based on faith, in other words, religion, her Christianity. So the question was asked what she thought about this subject. And she said, well, she just believed in live and let live. And what's wrong with love? As long as there's more love in the world. Human reason. And I think that sometimes, even in uh, our, our teenagers for sure, in some cases, if they're in public schools, but even adults sometimes don't realize just how bad these things are because they think that, well, it doesn't affect me. But it does. It does affect you. We heard some interesting things from the, the members over there. <clears throat> uh, some of the members were reporting the kind of intimidation that they have at work to cast their opinion as yes. And there are businesses that let the, their employees know that that's what's expected of them. When you see government buildings with the rainbow flag being flown, a government building, which should be neutral in that case, it tells you that there's a certain, that certainly they're promoting it. I, I just want to read a couple scriptures simply because if we don't, you've been told, we're being told all the time that the Bible does not condemn this practice. And yet in Leviticus 18, and we've quoted this a number of times in our publications, uh, in verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Now, there are a lot of other abominations in 18th chapter here, uh, incest and uh, uh, adultery and fornication. All those things are uh, listed here, and it talks about how if we fall into that, you know, do those things, that God is going to vomit us out of the land, just as he vomited the previous inhabitants out of the land. That doesn't sound very encouraging. And that's rather interesting when you think about Laodicea. Laodiceans uh, <clears throat> may not be guilty of the sin, but they may be amenable to... Uh, Support it, or at least not condemn it. Now, in the 20th chapter, verse 13, this is a verse that we uh, we do not quote on our programs uh, simply because uh, in Canada, uh, this verse is considered hate literature. So I'm presenting this to you and showing you why it is hate literature. 
in that context. Verse 13 of Leviticus 20, it says, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Now, that part is fine. Well, it's not fine, but it, you can get away with it. But the part that becomes hate literature is, They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. And that's considered stirring up hatred and violence against people who commit these sins. So we have to be wise as serpents and careful how we approach some of these things. Uh, Romans, the first chapter, we're all familiar with Romans 1. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. However, let's just notice that it talks about those who knew God uh, did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They professed themselves to be wise, verse 22. They became fools. We read in uh, verse 18, or we could read, that uh, these individuals suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so as a result, God gives them up to uncleanness, verse 24, to dishonor themselves among themselves. And verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchange a natural use for what is against nature. Also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And there are penalties, natural penalties that come upon people who commit these sins. They would like to talk about love, but they don't want to talk about the actual practice and the result of those practices. And then it lists all these different sins. God gave them over to a debased mind in verse 28, a mind void of judgment, a deranged mind. And then it lists all these sins in verse 32. It says, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Those who approve of those practices, those who accept those things. Now, we're not to go out there, obviously, and start doing harm to people. That's natural consequences will do plenty of harm, and God will deal with them in some day. But we are not to sit back and approve of these things. Today, they have the LGBTQ2SA plus movement. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, transgendered, intersexual, queer, questioning, two-spirited, and allies. And then they put a plus at the end of it simply because they keep adding letters, new behaviors, sologamy, where you marry yourself. Then there's a fellow that married his computer. You can't make some of this stuff up. People marry themselves, and they actually have friends that will come and celebrate with them. Do we buy the propaganda that people are born this way? It is propaganda. We could read 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verse 9 and 10, where it says, Neither homosexuals nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God, along with others will not be a part of the kingdom of God. What about abortion? 
Abortion is another one. I'll just refer you to uh, <clears throat> the program I, I gave on uh, tiny fingers and toes. I think there's a lot of information in there. There are people in the church who have had abortions, sometimes as teenagers. I don't know about adults, but I do know young adults get themselves in trouble, and so they compound one sin upon another. People often bring up the subject of rape and incest, and that's really not the issue in our society. Those are the rare cases. Pam Stencil is a, <clears throat> a very powerful speaker. It's a woman. She went to Liberty University. I think she's probably a Baptist minister. I, I don't know that absolutely, but I think I'm pretty sure she is. And uh, she's a very powerful speaker. How many of you are familiar with Pam Stencil? Okay, a number of you are. Um, she gives speeches to presentations to schools, to church groups, to young people mostly, on why fornication is wrong and the, the consequences of it. And it's hard to listen to her and not be affected by what she says. She is just a very, very uh, unique speaker. And she talks a little bit about <clears throat> abortion, and she spends a little bit of time on the subject of of rape. And she describes an individual, a young lady up in the state of Michigan, who was raped and was pregnant as a result of the rape. <clears throat> she chose to have the child, even though it was after Roe versus Wade, she could have had a legal, quote, legal abortion. Uh, but she chose to have the child and to put it up to a, for adoption, and she did that and a, a nice family adopted this, this child, a little girl. I guess, say, a little girl. All babies are little. Um, but she, she adopted, had the child adopted, and the child grew up. She said that young girl could have had an abortion, but she didn't. And she said the girl that she produced or that came from her, that was adopted out, is me. And I've heard that a number of times. I've played that for people. And I just get choked up every time. She says it so much better than I can. But here she said, I don't know who my father was. And she says very strongly, I did not deserve to die because of the sin of my father. So, it's quite a statement. And yet it's always thrown up. What about rape or incest? In reality, those are the few cases. Those are not the main cases. But I think she answered the question quite well. If you've not seen program Tiny Fingers and Toes, I encourage you to do so. What about assisted dying or euthanasia? Because that is becoming a big thing. Exodus 20 verse 13 says, you shall not murder. But also, there's a purpose even in suffering. Notice over in Hebrews, the second chapter, Hebrews 2, 
verses 17 and 18. It says, Therefore in all things he, that is Christ, had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are uh, tempted. So Christ suffered, not only suffered temptation, but he suffered on the stake. But that makes him more able to appreciate what we go through. There is a purpose for suffering. If you have a dog, okay, maybe you take that dog out of his misery if he's going to the end because he's not going to learn much from it. He's not going to be resurrected. But God tells us that we should not murder. And whether that's yourself or someone else, we should not do so. But there is a purpose through suffering. Notice Hebrews 5, verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Then we learn things through suffering. It's more than just the temporary life that we're here for. There are other scriptures that talk about that as well. Romans 8, verses 16 to 18. Uh, If you've not seen it, we have something called Viewpoint that is out there. Some programs that are put out by... uh, the, the uh, Canadian work, and you can just go to uh, Tomorrow's World Viewpoint, and we have one on assisted dying, a very well-presented four- or five-minute program giving facts about assisted dying and where it is going in our world today and how there is creep. It starts out one way, and it's voluntary, and then how more and more it is involuntary. What about people who are not able to make the decision for themselves? Shall we do that? What about recreational marijuana? You know, there are actually people who have asked the question, well, now if marijuana is legal, is it okay? I think I may have touched on that earlier. End of the time, I would encourage you to go to viewpoints, tomorrowsworld.org, uh, uh, Canada or, or our uh, site here, and you can find the viewpoints. There's one on, on that subject, on marijuana. And, of course, we have the latest magazine where the lead article there is on the subject of marijuana. It will be a two-part series. And it's very relevant because uh, July, I think it's the 18th of uh, next year, uh, it will become legal across Canada. So we have it about eight states here where it's legal, and I don't remember exactly the number, and it will be legal across Canada. So it's a good idea. If it's legal, is it okay? Well, it's legal to work on the Sabbath, It's legal to do a lot of things that are not legal in God's sight. The question being asked shows a lack of understanding. So in conclusion, let's summarize. God is the ruler of all things. He is our creator. The one who brought us into being and the one who sustains our lives. Therefore, he has every right to determine what is right and what is wrong. But... The law of God is not 
to make life hard on us. It is a reflection of who he is. And that's why when he lives his life in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is building in us his very character. He is teaching us love. And so he's given us his law because it reflects his character. This is why we know that there is an objective standard of right and wrong. We don't have to use human reason. We don't have to take a vote on it. God's law spells out his character of what is right and what is wrong. Now, I think that we need to look at these things. We need to evaluate the direction of the world, whether it be alcohol, whether it be marijuana, whether it be abortion, whatever it might be, uh, whether it be self-esteem. We need to look at it not from what the world is teaching but from the way that God is teaching us. So this is how we know what is right and what is wrong, and I hope we'll evaluate our own thinking. It's very easy to get in the habit of human reasoning instead of accepting what God says.